0: Back to the to the uh, new term and the the uh, our, our seminar series for Hillary term, and uh, I'm delighted to have a uh, one of our own uh, from college uh, kicking kicking off the seminar series this term. my um, Brewer uh, is, is, uh, is as you can see from the department of Hispanic studies and a an expert on uh, on Cervantes and the Golden Age of of uh, Spanish literature, so i um, hand over to Brian so thanks very much for, for coming and speaking to us today. Um, this, is, uh, this work is a little bit representative of the kind of things that I do. Um, most of you, I assume, will be broadly familiar with uh, the novel, Don Quixote, written by Miguel de Cervantes and published in two parts, 1605 and 1615. <coughs> It's the story of a country gentleman, and not very wealthy, uh, who spends all of his disposable income, and then some, buying uh, romances of chivalry, books of knight errantry, uh, which he reads over and over and over again, and from staying up all night, eating little, sleeping little, reading a lot, his brain dries out and it goes crazy, and he believes that he is a knight uh, from one of these chivalric romances. And he uh, fashions some sort of rusty cardboard armor and uh, takes off through La Mancha, a big area in central Spain, trying to live out these literary fantasies. Along the way, he picks up a squire, Sancho Panza, who is uh, a local farmer, uh, very rustic, not too bright, but c- pretty clever. Uh, it, this is a comedy. It's been read myriad ways. Uh, in Conception, it was a comedy. It is a very comic novel, but it has many serious elements <coughs> as well. One of the major conceits of the novel, to which I'll make reference, is that um, it's not a work of fiction, that it's a true history about a real person who actually lived, that it was written by a Moorish historian named Fideonette Benethevi, and that Cervantes, or the narrator, Cervantes in the guise of narrator, uh, and is not the father, but the the stepfather, or as he also calls himself, the second author of uh, this book, and that he merely recovered the manuscript from the archives and had it translated from Arabic, in which it was written, into Castilian, and then he is presenting it to us. So, I'm going to talk about two episodes from the first part of the novel, 1605, relatively early on, and I think. Indicate really well how Cervantes mixes in this kind of economic material that was really in widespread circulation in the Spain of the period. Beginning really in the 1540s, there was a first of theoretical writings about economics, exchange, value, justice, etc. Um, in in, uh, in economics, and then beginning at, towards the end of the 16th century and really exploding in the early 17th century, there was a great deal of a political economy that was produced, uh, much of it very innovative. My first section is Don Quixote's story, history, or wrapping paper. Um, <clears throat> and what I want to talk about is the narration of discovery of the bulk of the Quixote manuscript itself. Uh, the first eight chapters go along, and then all of a sudden, when Don Quixote is in the middle of a battle with a basque squire who is using a pillow there, a sort of a cushion instead of a shield, which he doesn't have. The narrative breaks off, and we get the intrusion from the second author who says, "Well, the tragedy of this story is that this is where the the true history ran out, and I, and I didn't have the rest of it to continue." So what he does is uh, eventually, in being when he's in Toledo in the Alcana, which is the central market, he discovers the rest of the manuscript, ostensibly, uh, has it translated from Arabic, and that's what we're reading. So this process of discovering and purchasing and having to the translating uh, the manuscript is what I want to talk to you about first. Okay. Uh, Don Quixote foregrounds, as few other texts do, the materiality of books. The novel makes explicit the welter of material interests that structure the markets within which books are produced, valued, exchanged, and consumed. From the story's opening paragraphs in which the narrator relates with unconcealed incredulity the unnamed Hidalgo sale of land upon the purchase of books of my errantry, to Don Quixote's visit to a printer <coughs> shop in Barcelona near the end of part two, every phase of literary production and consumption occurs within an economic context that is always <coughs> implicit and occasionally materializes as an actual physical presence. The market that is most explicitly realized in this regard is the Alcana de Toledo, which in part one, chapter nine, becomes the stage for the recovery of the bulk of the Quixote manuscript by the so-called second author. This episode is one of the most economically significant in the novel because of its brief but suggestive description of the book as both physical object and intellectual artifact subject to various uses and therefore susceptible of varying evaluations of value. The process of discovery begins when the second author casually interrupts an act of commercial exchange. One day, when I was in the Alcaná de Toledo, a boy went up to a silk merchant to sell some old bundles of paper. And because I like to read even the scraps of paper that I find in the street, spurred on by my natural inclination, I took one of the bundles that the boy was selling and saw that it was written in Arabic script. The second author quickly finds a morisco of that is, a descendant of Spanish Muslims who is proficient in both Spanish and Arabic to translate these sheets, which turn out to be a fragment of Don Quixote itself. He continues narrating the encounter. It took a lot of discretion to hide my happiness upon hearing the name of the book, and jumping in front of the silk merchant, I bought all the boys' papers for Hector Real, and if he were perceptive and knew how much I wanted them, He easily could have made more than six reales from the sale. The real was a silver coin, and very, very, very common. This description of the discovery and purchase of Don Quixote not only narrates an economic transaction, it dramatizes the exchange precisely, albeit humorously, in the terms of the price theory and commercial ethics that were current in early modern Spain. The dominant intellectual force in this regard was a resurgent late scholasticism whose theoretical and practical economic precepts were predicated upon moral postulates drawn principally from Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas and applied to an increasingly globalized economy of incipient capitalism. For the neo-scholastics, the foundational principle that governed the legitimacy of any purchase agreement was commutative justice, i.e. equality of value (coughs) between the items exchanged in the deal. This parity was expressed monetarily by the so-called just price.
1: For example,
0: If a book had a value of six reales, then six reales was the just price of the item, and buyers were morally obligated to charge and sellers to pay that price for the book. This was a matter of immutable justice. Violating the principle was a mortal sin that could only be assuaged by establishing equality through monetary restitution. The fact that absolution was achieved exclusively through economic equality reflects the fact that, in the context of market exchanges, Value was not an ontological category, but a description of monetary price. Price, in turn, was a function of the general use value that buyers collectively ascribed to a given item within a specific market. Other factors, such as scarcity and cost of production, could legitimately influence the price of a good, but ultimately economic value was primarily seen to be the result of the subjective social evaluation of an object's general utility. It is important to emphasize that this subjective judgment was social, not individual, and that, in most cases, a good's utility value had to be measured in general, not particular terms. This implicit consensus of an object's value was called the common estimate, and it was assumed to be the morally valid basis of economic evaluation. Sometimes the common estimate was called the natural price, and in most contexts, it was equivalent to the just price. Given the volatility of the market, however, the natural or just price of an object was subject to frequent alteration. In fact, according to the Dominican friar Tomás de Mercado, it was as changeable as a chameleon. For this reason, there was latitude in the just price, which was not a single point, but a scale, with high, medium, and low values. The king, or his agents, had the legitimate authority to fix the legal price of the good, but in order to be just, this price had to take into account the pre-existing common estimate. So, in summary, the just price could be either natural or legal, but in either case, it necessarily had to reflect the common estimate of a good's general utility within a given market. So let us return now to Don Quixote in order to observe how Cervantes situates the episode of the discovery of the manuscript within the parameters of this general theory of prices. Firstly, note that there are two competing buyers involved in the process of evaluating and pricing the manuscript. There's also a seller, of course, about whom more anon. For the silk merchant, the object is merely a collection of loose sheaves, presumably useful as wrapping paper for his wares. This was a typical use for old bits of paper to wrap up merchandise being sold. Critic Carol Johnson supposes that this businessman intends to use the paper as food for his silkworms, a possibility that heightens the story's comedy, but does not fundamentally alter the basic economic point. For the merchant, Don Quixote is not a text, but rather a bundle of papers with a use value far removed from its original purpose as an ostensibly historical document. For him, it is quite literally worth only the paper it is written on. For the second author, however, the manuscript is valuable precisely because of its content, that it should be written on paper is immaterial to his evaluation of the text's worth. This representation of variable use values dramatizes exactly the kind of illustrative anecdotes commonly found in 16th century guides to commercial ethics for merchants. One of the best of these is the very useful and very general treatise on all contracts written by the Dominican friar Francisco Garcia and published in Valencia in 1583. As befits a practical guide to ethical commerce, García's treatise is replete with real-world examples of the legitimate variability of market prices according to buyer's particular estimates of a good's utility. One of his recurrent examples is precisely that of a book, the price of which may depend upon whether a buyer values it as a book proper or as a bundle of paper. García asserts that just as shoes can be considered either as individual pieces of leather or as footwear, A book can be valued for its paper, which may be useful for lining hats, wrapping up soap, or for binding other books. Alternatively, a book may be valued for its principal use, which is to be read and studied, or for its secondary use, which is to be sold or traded. Even if a buyer values the book Quay Book, however, the same object will have different values according to its relative utility for different readers. Thus, a book of astrology will have a general value for booksellers, but in particular, a particular and higher value for an astrologer. This precept of superior subjective value did not invalidate the general principle of the common estimate, however, because it could only be invoked to legitimate a higher price in order for a seller to avoid incurring an undue loss on a particularly valuable item. Its use was therefore circumscribed, at least in principle. García's lucid exposition explains the price theory that underpins the interaction between the silk merchant and the second author in Don Quixote. Both estimates are utilitarian and equally legitimate within the moral postulates of the period, but they lead to divergent evaluations and ultimately different prices for each potential buyer of the same objects. Because the second author values Don Quixote more highly than the silk merchant, the boy who is selling the manuscript accepts his offer for the item. The description of the transaction is especially intriguing, however, because it refers directly to contemporary theories of ethical pricing and commercial exchange. The second author's suggestion that the seller could have capitalized on his desire to buy the manuscript in order to charge him a higher price than he in fact paid dramatizes a problem of p- applied commercial ethics of the kind of contemporary moralists addressed in their mercantile guides. As before, García provides an especially clear exposition of the relevant moral principles. In order for a sale to be legitimate, he explains, the price does not depend upon the value the buyer ascribes to the object in question, but to the value of the item to the seller in accordance with its natural price within the market. Applying this doctrine to the second author's acquisition of Don Quixote in Toledo, we see that it would have been morally illegitimate, although certainly not uncommon, for the boy, that is the seller, to price the manuscript according to its utility and value for the buyer since the latter's estimation of the object's worth has no bearing on its use value and hits hence its legitimate price for the former. In this instance, the seller's ignorance of the content of the document that he is selling is irrelevant because he accurately prices the sheets of paper according to their value as such within this particular market. Once in possession of the document, the second author hires a Morisco of Caminado, a man descendant of Spanish Muslims who was proficient in both Arabic and Castilian, to translate it, quote, offering him any payment that he wanted. The offer of any payment that the translator requests raises no ethical issue in regard to the just price because buyers and sellers could legitimately offer or accept any price for a good, or service in this case, so long as they did so willingly. In the event, the Morisco translator accepts not money, but a quantity of raisins and wheat in payment for the translation. Cervantes is here trading in an ethnic stereotype based upon the dietary habits of Spanish Muslims that he no doubt intended to amuse his old Christian readers. However, this detail simultaneously and more subtly cuts directly against the widespread accusation that the Moriscos were greedy hoarders of wealth, Cervantes himself reproduces this aspect of the standard bigotry of the age via the dog Berganta in the exemplary novel The Dog's Colloquy. This was published as part of a collection of short stories in 1613. Their only aim, is speaking of the Moriscos, their only aim is to mint and amass coinage, and to do this they work and do not eat. If anything more than a single silver real comes into their possession, they condemn it to a life sentence and eternal darkness. In this way, by always working and never spending, they accumulate and pile up the greatest quantity of money that there is in Spain. They are its money box, its moth, its magpies, and its weasels. They hoard everything, they hide everything, and they swallow up everything. I would like to insist on the language of consumption in the dog's invective. They do not eat, they swallow up everything which forms part of an ancient tradition that equated spending coins with their symbolic ingestion. The Morisco translator of Don Quixote, however, works not for money, but for food that he will very literally consume, unlike the metaphorical consumption of money that the Doa Berganza, echoing the popular sentiment of the day, attributes to the Moriscos. This anonymous character thus challenges the contemporary stereotype of Morisco greed and hoarding by choosing payment in foodstuffs when the second author has explicitly offered to allow him to name his price for translating the Quixote manuscript. Given that the second author has purposefully purchased the document at the lowest possible price in order to resell the translated version at a handsome profit, this otherwise minor detail is suggestive of a critical attitude towards ethnic stereotyping and Christian hypocrisy on the part of their unfit. Part 2 the Batillono the Christ Theory and the Nature of Money, Economic Perspectivism. Uh, background the narration uh, in the novel to this point. Um, <clears throat> so, the discovery of the Quixote manuscript occurs in chapter 9, of part 1 in chapter 21. Don Quixote looks up and sees coming down the road uh, a person whom he believes to be a knight wearing a golden helmet on his head. In fact, it's a barber who is wearing his brass basin on his head to protect his new hat, presumably new hat, from the rain. Uh, Don Quixote attacks him anyway. The barber flees in terror, leaving his basin behind. Don Quixote picks it up and uses it as a helmet. And this produces one of the most iconic images uh, from uh, the It's reproduced a lot. Here you can see this basin on his head, not an actual helmet. Uh, he and Sancho have a kind of a running dialogue about the nature of this item and and why other people want it or do not want it as the case may be. Nobody else seems to be interested in taking away this magical object from Don Quixote. Uh, Quixote wears it in another one of the most famous episodes of uh, the first part of the novel when he frees a group of uh, men, criminals, condemned to row in the king's galleys. So he frees them uh, then uh, request that they all go off and uh, tell his invented lady, Dulcinea, that he's their champion. They refuse and pelting with stones. Okay? And then later, uh, the whole issue gets resolved in a roadside inn. The barber happens to come in, see Don Quixote, and he requests uh, repayment for his purloined property. So that's the narrative background. Cervantes again turns to the economic concepts of use value and divergent estimation of utility and price in the narration of Don Quixote's acquisition of what he believes to be the magical golden helmet of Mambrino. Given that the object in question is, in fact, a humble barber's basin made of brass, and especially in light of Sancho Panza's attempt to reconcile these two divergent perspectives with the neologism "bafielmo" or basin helmet... The episode has occasioned a great deal of critical dialogue in reference to Cervantes' apparent perspectivism, that is, his ostensible presentation of life as containing not one, but multiple and equally real realities. I would like to approach this episode from the perspective of economic value and contemporary price theory, which straightforwardly emphasizes the social, not particular nature of evaluating and valuing reality. So, having attacked the barber and forced him to flee without his basin, Don Quixote sends Sancho to retrieve the object. Sancho immediately assigns the object a precise and ultimately accurate monetary value. I quote, by God, that's a good basin. And it's worth eight reales if it's worth a single minor d. The minor d was the unit of account in the period. So, one real was 34 minor d. Di eight was 272 the Mad Knight, in contrast, evaluates the same object very differently. Do you know what I imagine, Sancho, that this famous piece of this enchanted helmet, by some strange accident, must have come into the hands of one who did not know how to appreciate nor estimate its value, and without knowing what he was doing, seeing that it was of purest gold, he must have melted down half of it to take advantage of its price, and from the other half he made this, which looks like a barber's basin, as you say. Both Knight and Squire apply the language and logic of contemporary price theory to their respective evaluations of the object, the former explicitly and obviously with some knowledge of the relevant terms and concepts, the latter only intuitively. Their estimations of both the Basin's utility and its value diverge radically, but ultimately Sancho is proven to be absolutely correct in his valuation, which does indeed (coughs) represent the common estimate of the Basin's nature and worth. How do we know? because the matter is eventually settled economically. Near the end of part one, when Quixote and Sancho find themselves, along with many other principal characters, in a roadside inn, the despoiled barber suddenly enters, recognizes the man who attacked him on the road, and demands the return of his property. After much broad comedy at the expense of both the madman and his increasingly exasperated victim, including a farcical trial in which the other characters satirically confirm the pretend knight's insane assessment of the basin's nature as a mythical helmet, the matter is concluded in purely financial and legal terms. And as for the helmet of Mangrino, the priest, on the sly and without Don Quixote's knowledge, paid eight reales for the basin, and the barber issued him with a certificate of receipt and a pledge to not claim that he had been deceived in the deal forever and ever. Amen. This payment and the issuance of a receipt confirm both Sancho's initial assel- assessment of the helmet's value, precisely eight reales, and that the price accurately reflects the common estimate of the object's worth. The proof is not just in the fact that Sancho and the barber each assigned to the basin a value of eight reales, but also because by issuing the receipt of sale and foregoing any right to sue for fraud, the barber recognizes, legally, that he has received the just price for the item. As I had mentioned, 16th century moral philosophers allowed some latitude in determining the just price of an object in a market transaction because the process was fluid and the price was subject to frequent oscillations. Civil law extended this leeway to a so-called one-half of the just price, i.e. 50% above or below the just price. So the barber's receipt is explicit acknowledgement that the price paid for the basin Falls within these parameters. In fact, it's even more precise uh, because when the barber first enters, he claims that his stolen basin was uh, worth an escudo, a gold coin uh, that was worth 400 maravedis. Uh, one and a half times 272 maravedis, which is what eight reales was worth, would be 408 maravedis. So the barber, in saying that basin was worth 400 maravedis, is explicitly valuing it just with inside the absolute top-end legal limit for the price. So he's trying to swick everyone else in getting repaid. This resolution puts pay to the question of the basin's nature and value as sanctioned by the common evaluation of its utility through the common estimate and expressed in the just price. But what of Sancho's famous description of the object as a basin helmet? Sancho coins the term at the end of an argument between Don Quixote and the barber as to the nature of the basin, as well as whether the pack saddle from the barber's mule, which Sancho kept for himself, is the bridle of a war horse. The context is important for understanding Sancho's attempt to describe the object as both basin and helmet. Quixote's explanation for the difference in perspectives is his standard one. Such transformations are common to errantry. Sancho's response is considerably subtler and is unrelated to either the ostensibly unstable nature of the object or variations in the perception of its essence. Rather, it is a description of the uses to which the basin has actually been put, both in its primary function as a barber's implement and secondarily as a helmet. Don Quixote, in fact, put the basin to such use when freeing the galley slaves, who subsequently pelted him with stones. As Sancho relates, since my lord won the basin until now, he has only fought a single battle when he freed the unfortunate slaves. And if it weren't for this basin helmet, he wouldn't have had a very good time with it because there were many a rock thrown on that day. Thus, the same object has two uses, a basin and improvised helmet, and it can be evaluated in price according to both of them just as the manuscript of Don Quixote itself could be valued either as a bundle of paper or as the historical account of a knight from La Mancha and then priced appropriately by competing buyers in an open market. In the case of both the manuscript and the basin, value is ultimately the product of the object's general general utility within particular markets. We see this principle more clearly because the contrast, because of the contrast of which the true, quote unquote, nature of each item is valued. The second author is able to purchase the Quixote manuscript at such a bargain price because the seller, the young boy, and the other potential buyer, the silk merchant, do not recognize the object as an historical document with a value as such that exceeds the material worth of its paper. Their ignorance is no impediment to a just transaction, however, because each party to the contract accurately evaluates the document's value for himself according to its intended use. In this market... The common estimate may be lower than it might otherwise be if more information were available, but such ignorance does not invalidate the legitimacy of the transaction because it does not fundamentally affect the nature of the manuscript as a collection of paper sheaves. Garfia turns this kind of inconsequential ignorance negative ignorance and distinguishes it from the more serious privative ignorance, which does pertain to the essential nature of an object in an exchange. The same issues play out in reverse in the case of the Barber's Basin, despite its more outlandish parody, Don Quixote deplores the woeful ignorance of one who did not know how to appreciate or estimate its value. If he were correct about the essence of the object, this might count as an example of primitive ignorance, but his estimation of the basin's nature and value ultimately proves irrelevant to the appropriate communal assessment of those qualities, as well as to the adequate pricing of the object according to its generally accepted social utility. Thus, we see that when determining the price of any good within a market, the core principle is the common estimate, which, when genuinely common, is the basis for the establishment of cognitive justice and therefore moral legitimacy. One might argue, of course, the commonality of perception is not necessarily synonymous with objectivity, but contemporary theorists appear to have accepted that dispersed subjectivity was a generally reliable, if not inherently foolproof, reflection of reality. There is a further aspect to Quixote's fabulous evaluation of the basin's essence and worth, one with more immediately political overtones. According to the madman, the ignoramus who did not recognize the helmet's true nature deformed it, which explains the object's strange appearance. What Don Quixote describes is, by analogy, the widespread practice of clipping gold and silver coins in order to take advantage of their metal content. The description of the mythical helmet as having two separable values, one the magical ability to ward off spells and the other as a mere commodity, reproduces analogically the dual nature of money, which is both an immaterial sign and a quantity of precious metal with a potentially different material value. In this way, the episode responds to a long running theoretical debate about the essence of money that had acquired urgency as a matter of political economy, following Following a series of currency manipulations by the Spanish crown in the first years of the 17th century. 16th century moral philosophers recognized the double aspect of money. Some held that a coin's face value merely reflected the pre existing commodity value of the metal from which it was minted. These theorists tended toward a metalist perspective because they maintained that the intrinsic value of money was derived from the commodity value of its metal content. Not all 16th century theorists held this opinion, however. Those who tended toward a nominalist view maintained that money was a mere convention established by the king, who alone had the authority to alter its value. Nevertheless, experience showed that money did indeed vary considerably in value, a phenomenon that Tomás de Mercado described and legitimized by ingeniously applying standard contemporary price theory to money. In most goods, he explains, the price is an extrinsic or accidental value determined not by ontology, but by the common estimate of utility. Money, however, is unique in that its price, or nominal value, is its essence, or intrinsic value. However, as with other goods, that price will fluctuate following the common estimate of value according to local conditions in particular markets. We see these concepts reflected in the language with which Don Quixote describes the unfortunately misshaped helmet of Mambrino, and more generally, in the resolution of the episode according to the common estimate of the basin's nature and value, as expressed through the price system and formalized with a mutually agreeable, legally binding monetary transaction. Quixote, we recall, attributes the defamation of the helmet to the strange accident by which the object came into the hands of one who clearly valued only its accidental, i.e., extrinsic commodity value as a piece of gold. This is the explicit meaning of his presumption that the person who mutilated the object melted it down out of ignorance in order to sell it as a lump of gold. As we have seen, the madman's very peculiar evaluation of the basin's essence and worth is completely superseded by the common estimate of its utility and price, which totally disregards the magical, intangible properties that Quixote deems to be the source of its intrinsic value. This collision of values represents very precisely an urgent debate then playing out in the field of monetary theory and Castilian political economy. Strapped for cash, the crown, the Castilian crown, for the first time since the successful currency reforms implemented by the Catholic monarchs in 1497, began to manipulate the coinage as a means of generating revenue. Gold and silver coins were not directly affected, however. Instead, Philip III chose to alter the monedas de veillon, Fractional currency made of copper alloy with a small amount of silver. In 1602, this silver plug was removed on the claim that the coin's value was purely nominal. In 1603, these copper coins were collected at Royal mints and re-stamped at double their face value. The owners received one-half the number of coins submitted, which constituted the whole of their original face value, while the crown kept the difference, i.e., 100% minus costs, in practice, about 92%. In response, there were howls of popular protest and a spate of critical writings by influential individuals who adopted the familiar language of monetary theory from the 16th century moral philosophers while emphasizing that the commodity value of coinage constituted its intrinsic value, which its nominal value merely expressed. In truth, the Spanish scholastics of the 16th century could hardly be inflexibly categorized as either nominalist or medalists. They tended to vary their opinions depending on whether they considered money quay money, or coins as disks of precious metal with a commodity value of their own. Even a rigid nominalist, such as Bar- Bartolomé de Albornoz recognized that gold and silver coins would be priced as pieces of precious metal outside the political boundaries of Castile. Nevertheless, what is striking about the theoretical debate regarding villain at the beginning of the 17th century is how previous theories about the nature of money and the source of its intrinsic value were interpreted and applied in direct response to new political realities. In 1605, the same year that Cervantes published Don Quixote Part I, three important and influential men, the humanist and royal chronicler Pedro de Valencia, the bishop of Gaeta Pedro de Oña, and the Jesuit Juan de Mariana, wrote treatises on monetary theory. Valencia, Oña, and Mariana take the same terms and concepts used by the earlier theorists. But in light of the crown's manipulation of billing, they insist upon not the royal prerogative to coin money, but the royal obligation to mint coinage that reflects the popular common estimate of the commodity value of the currency's metal. Because monetary theory was largely predicated upon contemporary price theory, as we've seen, it was a relatively straightforward matter for Tevantes to reference the controversy surrounding currency manipulation in an episode that is built upon and finds resolution in then-current ideologies of values and prices and market exchanges. By associating commodity value with the commonly perceived and legally certified nature and price of the Barber's Basin, the episode of the Helmet of Mambrino suggests that the crown's contention that the value of money was determined by royal fiat, is the monetary equivalent of Don Quixote's fantastical evaluation of a brass basin as an enchanted piece of armor. What counts, as Valencia, Oña, and Mariana affirmed, is the communal perception of utility and value, not the aberrant claim of a single individual. In concluding, I would like to return to the narration of the discovery of Don Quixote in Toledo. Just like the supposed helmet of Mambrino. The Arabic manuscript that the second author discovers can be understood as the analog of a coin, similarly endowed with two values, a nominal or face value, represented here by the words of the page, and a commodity value, in this case, the sheets of paper. As we have seen, these two values are separable, both in theory and in practice. This was equally true of contemporary currency, of course, and this fact allowed merchants and bankers to profitably speculate on the relative values of coinage in different international markets. Because gold and silver castilian currency tended to be undervalued relative to its actual commodity price, it was frequently exported abroad, thus contributing to the drain of precious metal from the kingdom that so bedeviled the crown and exasperated the arbitristas, the projectors, or more politely, political economists of the period. Read from this perspective, the Quixote manuscript functions in precisely the same way as a coin, whose face value is inconsequential beyond the political boundaries of which it is legal tender. Likewise, the document is only valuable for its base material outside the linguistic community where it circulates. Because the second author recognizes the text's unique nature, he is able to purchase it at a very low commodity price within the relatively small market in Toledo, where its value is merely a function of its material worth. He then essentially exports the manuscript by having it translated and subsequently selling it in a larger castilian language market where it commands a higher price given that capital flight was frequently identified as one of the greatest threats to spanish prosperity and political hegemony it is worth considering the irony that the second author similarly profits from the export of the morisco community's cultural capital i doubt however than any of Cervantes's contemporaries would have perceived as potentially self-critical symmetry. Moreover, as is typical of Cervantes's work, any political implications or satirical inferences are diffuse. In any case, by explicitly describing his own literary creation in terms of the interplay of competing and potentially radically divergent uses, values, and prices, Cervantes incorporates the logic of economic exchange into the essence of the novel, although he uses the concepts and terminology of his age, by making economics a structural component of Don Quixote, Cervantes opens up a new discursive space that transcends the familiar rigidities of the traditional division of styles and provides a template for future authors to treat seriously in their fiction the business of everyday life.